I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this morning we come to the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, and I will read through chapter 4 and verse 3. This is God's inerrant and powerful word. Please give it your attention. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We live in America. And this is a country that is established on the foundational concept of human rights. The Declaration of Independence said that all men have inalienable rights and that governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. So the very call to establish our government was a call based in human rights and says that the purpose of government itself is to protect and establish and maintain those human rights. The U.S. Constitution, after the country is formed, the Constitution is given given its foundational document. And in the preamble to that document, it says that it was intended to establish justice. And there were amendments added to the Constitution called the Bill of Rights. And the purpose of the Constitution, the very core of its purpose, is to protect our inalienable rights that the Declaration of Independence referred to and to ensure that justice, based on that concept of rights, always characterizes our society. Think about the hot topics of the day. Think about the things that you read about in the newspaper or read about on the web pages, the news sites. Think about the debates you're hearing around the water coolers. What are the hot topics about 
government and society today, aren't they all about, ultimately, human rights? We talk about social justice issues. It's trendy to be concerned about social justice. And so we talk about slavery and human trafficking and racism, poverty, immigration, abortion, affordable health care, gender issues, environmentalism. And we're fighting about these things. There seems to be every day the, the, the division and the hostility and the disagreement over these issues seems to get greater and greater. And the problem is, is that we're not getting to the root of the disagreement. The problem is, is that in our society, the basis on which we define and understand human rights and justice has gotten more and more divided over the recent generation. And that's because we have a pluralistic society with different worldviews. And it's your worldview that determines how you define what an inalienable human right is and therefore how you define what justice is. And so the problem is we get fighting about all these surface issues, how these differences in our worldviews manifest themselves in the way that we live our lives every day and the difficulties we see in this fallen world. And the problem is, is that our worldviews are so different. That's where we need to begin the discussion. What are our rights as human beings? And what is justice? Who gets to say? Do presidents define these things? Do legislators define these things? Do judges and justices define these things? Do scientists give us the basic definition for rights and justice? How about the people behind Wall Street? Are they really the ones that are defining our sense of rights and justice? Or is it just simply the majority? Majority opinion, whatever the polls say. You see, this isn't just a sociological or political issue. That's why we can't solve it. As we see it, it's just a sociological or political issue. It's really a theological issue. It's a worldview issue. We've seen this in the book of Ecclesiastes because the book of Ecclesiastes is all about worldview. It's all about how you see the world around you, how you interact with it. We've been talking about the preacher, as the ESV translates it, or I've been calling him Professor Q because I can't pronounce his Hebrew name, or I've been calling him Q just for short. But Q is a construction of the original writer, whether it was Solomon or some other great king of Israel who wrote Ecclesiastes. But Q is, is a character, so to speak, that he creates with a very limited worldview, as we've been talking about all along. His worldview is, I'm going to seek meaning and purpose and satisfaction under the sun. I'm going to limit my worldview to what I can know from my observation of this fallen world and my experience in it. And every time, he's gone, he's gone off on a series of pursuits and searches. He's devoted all of his wealth and energy and power and time to finding meaning and purpose in several different areas we've looked at already. Wisdom and knowledge. And he's come to the conclusion that it's all meaningless. He devoted himself to pleasure and possessions. 
and he decided it was all vanity, it was all empty, it was all meaningless. He devoted himself to work and accomplishments. And again, his conclusion was, this is all meaningless. Well, here in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he goes off on another pursuit. He wants to find and understand justice under the sun. He's talking about human rights. What's just? What's justice under the sun? He wants to find it. See if there's meaning and purpose in that. And once again, he comes and gives us his conclusion right up front. Doesn't leave any suspense. Lets you know right away what he's found. And not only has he found injustice everywhere he looks under the sun. Deeply troubled by the degree of injustice he sees everywhere. But you'll notice, he says it's even worse than that. Because he finds injustice in the halls of justice. Look at verse 18. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's talking about the place where justice is supposed to be protected in society. He says, even in the courts, even among the judges and the lawyers, I don't find justice, I find wickedness, injustice. And he's deeply discouraged. You know how that feels, don't you? Every time you hear about a corrupt judge who's there to render just decisions, but because of selfishness or corruption or greed or whatever it is, he perverts justice. You know how discouraging that is because that's his very job. He's, he's the one. If he doesn't do it, who will? Or what about corrupt lawyers or corrupt legislators or corrupt politicians in general or corrupt clergy? Or corrupt policemen. If the ones who are meant to define, defend our rights and define justice for us and maintain justice for us, if they are not doing their job, then who will? When policemen are on the mob's payroll, that's thoroughly discouraging to the people who are under their authority. When they beat up on minority prisoners or when they rape women on traffic stops, We're outraged. There is no greater outrage because they are supposed to be symbols of justice and rights. When politicians accept bribes in order to pass unjust laws, who else do we appeal to? Or when clergy abuse our children, who can we appeal to? You see, Q's question here is always relevant, maybe never more relevant than in our own confused society. If those who are responsible to protect justice are wicked, then what hope is there under the sun? That's why we have to enter into our society's dialogue about situations like Ferguson, Missouri. And I'm not going to take a side here this morning about who's right, what's right. It's a confused mess what happened there. But what you need to understand is what was going on there is this basic question. Can we trust the authorities to protect our rights to to really do justice in our society? And whether 
the sentiment was wrong or right, justified or unjustified, the fact that many people don't feel they can trust the authorities creates an incredibly insecure society, a society that has no real foundation. Because remember, that's what our document said, that government is put here to ensure that justice is done and that rights are upheld. So we need to enter into that discussion. That's what Q's doing. He's saying, if those in authority don't protect justice and protect rights, then what hope do we have? There is no hope under the sun. You notice what he does. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 4. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, okay, that's the really bad news, but it doesn't get any better when you look outside the courts, when you look outside the authorities. And he looks at society in general. You know, when the leaders are wicked, when the leaders are corrupt, the whole society is going to be even worse. And that's what he sees in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. You know that grief, don't you? You see people that are oppressed. It's easier to see it in somebody else's country. You can look at what's going on over in corrupt nations and corrupt leaders in other countries and how the people suffer, and your heart grieves because they have no hope. Because there is no justice in their land. But we're headed there in a hurry in our own land. You see, this is a depressing message, isn't it? It always is in Ecclesiastes. And you'll notice that there is no tone. I mean, it's almost like you get to this point in what Q is saying, and you want him to say, rally the troops. You know, get a cause going. Be a Martin Luther King. Step forward. Let's do something about this. Let's bring about social justice. But there's no tone of optimism or victory in this passage at all. Matter of fact, his search for justice under the sun has left him in deep despair. If you look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, after looking at the wickedness in the courts of the land and looking at the oppression and the suffering under oppression throughout the land, he says... It really stinks to be alive. He basically talks about three statuses that a person can begin. Either a person can be alive and witnessing all this oppression and wickedness and corruption and injustice. Or he says it would be better if you died. And he's not talking about going to heaven. Heaven's not in the picture here at all. He just says if you die, then you don't have to look at it anymore. But then you notice he gets to his, there's actually a better state than that. He says it would be better yet if you just were never born. Because then you wouldn't have to witness it in the first place and not be able to do anything about it. Better to not even be born. I hear echoes of what Job said in the midst of all his. I mean, that's what happens with biblical writers. I love the fact that Scripture's honest about this. That when you look under the sun and you get caught up in reality under the sun and you lose sight of what's true above the sun, you are left in despair. I mean, remember what Job said in his despair. He said, I curse the day I was born. Or poor Jeremiah. Talk about living under corrupt authorities. Poor Jeremiah, he says in chapter 20, verse 18, why did I come out of the womb to see all this toil and sorrow and spend all my days in shame? But I want to remind you that Q is not an atheist. We've said that over and over. He's a theist. He's an enlightened theist. Because he sees clearly things under the sun, and he does believe that there is a creator. 
And that's because he's looking under the sun. And only a fool, Scripture says, look at, looks at, observes things under the sun and says there isn't a creator. So he can see that there's a creator. He believes that there is a God. But he doesn't, he's not allowing himself to consult special revelation from above the sun, so he's restricted to what he can know about the creator under the sun. And so he says, if there's a God, if there's a creator, where is he in all this? And you hear that question every day, don't you, from unbelievers? You guys believe in a God, where is he? Does he not see? Does he not know? Does he not care? Look at what he says. He says, God will judge the righteous in the wicked in verse 17. He believes that this creator is also a judge. Now, wait a minute. Is he quoting scripture here? There's lots of scriptures that say that. Is he, is he finally appealing to Revelation? Is he fi- no. He, he, he's only going to look under the sun. But what he's saying is he looks at the world. Why do we even care about oppression? Why do we even notice injustice? It's because we have this law of God written on our heart, this conscience, this hunger for justice, this, this awareness that we can observe justice to some degree, but it's so covered over and lost and corrupted in this culture. But there's this sense that justice is there, and it must reflect the Creator. It's something you can know from looking at creation. So he is getting this from, not, from general revelation, not what we call special revelation through Scripture. He says there must be a creator to have a world like this, and he must be just. But where is he? Where is his justice? How can he see every day what's going on and not do something about it? Again, you've got a God in his exists in his worldview, but this is a God who's not intervening, a God who's not involved under the sun. And that's especially grievous in the sight of all the oppression and injustice that happens on earth. Verse 18, he gives a a, a suggestion, an idea of where God may be. What's God doing? Why is he not intervening? Why is he not bringing judgment? Why is he not punishing these evil judges? Why is he not punishing these evil rulers, these authorities? Why is he allowing this suffering and oppression to go on? He says in verse 18, God is testing the children of man that they may see that they themselves are but beasts puzzled over this quite a bit this week what's he saying there what's he getting at what does he mean that God is testing us by not intervening and bringing judgment against wickedness in the new testament we talk about that being God's kindness that he delays his judgment but here he's saying this is God is just and he's not intervening it's not right if punishment is not immediate he's saying then men throw off all restraint isn't that true Isn't that our fallen nature? That if, you know, just think of it. If you were to lie or steal or, you know, cheat, whatever you're going to do, and, you know, as soon as you, you, you did it, as soon as you committed the sin, you were zapped from heaven. You would learn pretty quickly to do the right thing, wouldn't you? But why? Why would you do the right thing? You'd do the right thing because you didn't want to get zapped from heaven. You know that as parents. When you're parenting your children, when they're, when they're toddlers, don't ever say to a toddler when he breaks a vase over his sister's head or something, don't ever say to a toddler, wait till your dad gets home. It won't work. Because toddlers 
Delayed punishment doesn't work with toddlers. They need immediate results for them to understand and begin to learn. But as children get older, as they become more mature, you're able to say, wait until dad gets home, or wait until, you know, that this is going to, something you're going to pay for later, something that's going to, you know, something that's going to, to, to affect your life a few hours from now, or a couple days from now, or maybe years from now. As the more mature they get, the more they understand the concept of delayed punishment. You see, that's what Q is saying here, is that God is delaying his punishment to show that we can't mature on our own. That left to ourselves, we're just like a selfish, godless toddler. That as long as we don't see immediate punishment, we're going to throw off all restraint, do whatever we want to do, and go our own way. And in that way, he says, we're no more than beasts. We're no different than animals. We just act according to our urges and instincts. Again, a very depressing, discouraging picture he lays out, but it's pretty close to what we see every day, isn't it? It's life under the sun. It's reality. God delays his punishment. He must be, he says, if this is God is just and he's not punished us yet, then it must be to show us that we just live like beasts without him intervening. But he doesn't find any hope in that because then he gets to the one act of punishment that God is consistent in and that everybody dies. He brings up the judgment of death. And we've seen this all through the book of Ecclesiastes, haven't we? That death is what really disturbs him because everybody dies. If you're looking for meaning and purpose and satisfaction under the sun, it's death that puts the lie to all of it. It says that you'll never find meaning under the sun. He says in verse 19, For what happens to the children of man and And what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. You see, he's not saying that there's no difference between men and animals. I mean, he's observing under the sun. He's observing, I mean, only a fool says that men and animals are the same. Well, you know, and other philosophies and worldviews say that men and animals are the same. But, you know, just common observation tells you that there's a huge difference between men and animals. Except in that everybody dies. All men and all animals die. And he says, so what good does it do to be different than the animals the rest of your life if you're just going to die at the end? The wise and the foolish die, he said earlier in the book. So what purpose is there, what satisfaction, what meaning is there in trying to be wise and knowledgeable? Both the rich and the poor die. So what purpose is it to pursue riches? Both the workaholic and the sluggard die. So what purpose is it to, what meaning and satisfaction can it ultimately give to devote yourself to your work? And here he says both the just and the unjust die. The wicked and the righteous both die. So there's no meaning and purpose under the sun. It's all dust to dust, he says. Do you notice, though, in verse 21, interestingly, he raises the possibility of existence after death? He knows that that could alter the whole equation if there's life after death. But you notice how he addresses the issue. He says in verse 21, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Again, he has no special revelation in his worldview. Based on what he observes under the sun, who knows whether there's life after death or not or what happens. He's not saying there isn't. 
He says, but if you're only limiting your worldview to what's under the sun, you can't know. No certainty. No hope there. And let me just stop and make, I think, an important implication from what we've just talked about. Going back to that issue of who defines what human rights are and who defines what justice is. The point that Q is making for us here is that human dignity and therefore human rights is based upon our relationship with God. That whole question of what human rights are and what justice is is meaningless apart from how you relate to your creator and judge. Let me go back to that quote from the Declaration of Independence. I only quoted a few phrases from it. Let me give you the, the very familiar sentence that those phrases come from. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. If you take that phrase out, endowed by their creator, given to them by their creator, if you take that out of that sentence then you're left with chaos, total subjectivity, meaninglessness under the sun. The key to human rights and the key to justice is understanding that all we are and all we have is given by our creator. So let me go back to this issue of death then. If all die, and in that sense we have no advantage over the animals because we're all going to die, And as Q says, if the worldview that only looks under the sun is true, then it's actually better to be dead than alive, and actually even better than that, to have never actually been born. Where do we go from here? This is the point in the sermon why I always say, what do we do? Go out and commit suicide. I mean, you know, that seems to be, that's the conclusion he's driving toward. Every search that he comes through, every conclusion he comes to. But he never advocates suicide, never. Because he believes in a creator and he believes in a judge, even though he doesn't know how to communicate in his worldview with that supreme being, there's enough fear of God in him that he's not going to commit suicide. So he says, what's the best we can do? We'll look at verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. We've heard this over and over and over again. How many times has he said this? If your worldview only encompasses what's under the sun, then the best you can do is go out and work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labor, including fine wine, good drink, whatever, you know, and and good food, whatever temporary pleasures you can get out of your work in this world, but understand that that's as good as it gets, and there is no meaning and no purpose in that ultimately. That's his conclusion. He comes to it time and time again. Well, this is where I always say every week, the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, the purpose of Solomon or whatever wise king it is that wrote this book, the purpose of him creating this Q character and confronting us with a worldview that only includes what you can observe and experience under the sun, the purpose is to drive us to the rest of scripture for the answers. To drive us to look for a word from heaven. So that we can know where meaning and purpose and truth and justice and rights really come from. So let me take you, not to the New Testament yet, I'll take you there in a minute, but let me just take you to another Old Testament passage. I'm going to take you to Psalm 49. 
And in Psalm 49, I'm going to read you some verses that are going to sound like like the psalmist here is sitting at the foot of Professor Q and buying into his entire under-the-sun worldview. It's going to sound like that at first. Listen to beginning in verse 10. For he, God, sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish. Sound familiar? And leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in all his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Should sound very familiar based on what we read earlier today. He's, he's, he's agreeing with Q to the last letter up to this point. He says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their yet after them a people people approve of their boasts like sheep they are appointed for sheol or the grave like sheep they're appointed like beasts they're appointed for death death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning their form shall be consumed in sheol or the grave with no place to dwell same message exactly but read the next verse but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. That's the gospel. That's the word from heaven, is that there is a way after death to be received by God in spite of our many sins. You see, we only find true justice in the Son of God. In the book of Romans, and I want to take you here for a minute. I know this is familiar territory for most of you. But let me take you to the book of Romans. I just want to point out something you might have missed. The book of Romans is where Paul lays out in great detail all of the biblical foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want, to notice, want you to notice how he argues for the gospel. He presents the gospel in light of the issues of human rights and justice before God. That the, He's basically going to make the point that the gospel is meaningless unless... God is just and holy and perfect in all of his ways and judgments. In chapter 1, you know this passage, he talks about basically describing life under the sun the same way that, 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 that uh, the preacher does, that, that Q does. He describes it the same way, more detail even. It says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then down in verse 21, he goes on to say, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, man was created in the image of God to worship God, but in his sin, he has degraded himself to the point where he's like an animal and he even worships animals. Fits very much with the same message that Q gives us under the sun. That's reality. That's human nature apart from grace. But I want you to notice that in, in, in laying out all the details of the gospel, Paul doesn't immediately go to grace. He actually immediately goes to the law and justice. And that's in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he talks about the fact that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, just like Q does. 
in chapter 2, verse 2. You may have wondered why this section's in here, but it's integral to the message of the gospel. You can't jump over this. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Down to verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying that what was true in the beginning when God said to Adam and Eve, if you obey my word, you will live. If you disobey my word, you will die. He's saying it's still true today, in Paul's day. The way to be right with God, the way to be received by God after death is to be perfect, to always do what is right in thought, word, and deed and never do anything wrong. And if you do that, God will receive you after death and reward you in an eternity of perfection. But if you disobey, ever disobey, then all you can expect after death is the fullness of God's justice and wrath for eternity. He says that was true for Adam and Eve, it was true in Paul's day, and it's still true today. Everybody who's perfect will go to heaven after they die. And none of you are qualified. That's what chapter 3 goes on to say. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have disobeyed. All of us deserve God's justice and wrath forever. But God has provided a way, and that's where the passage we read earlier, the beautiful, my favorite passage in Romans, chapter, verse 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, entering into God's favorable presence for eternity is still given only to those who are perfect and just and right in everything that they've ever done. It's still only given to those But none of us qualified, so God provided his own son to give us a way. His own son died on the cross and bore the eternal punishment that our sins deserved completely. It is finished, he said, as he died on the cross. So God's just wrath is paid for. It is done. But beyond that, he's given us the gift of Christ's righteousness. So that when we stand before God on judgment day... He's going to see perfect men and women standing before him because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. God has never lowered his standards for perfect justice, perfect righteousness. He's never lowered it. He's just sent his son to give it to us as a gift, and it's received by faith. You see what I'm saying? The gospel is meaningless without justice. The gospel gospel is all about justice. The God of all the earth will do what's right. He will make every wrong right. And praise God for you and me, he made every wrong we did right through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. 
I emphasize this, this may be obvious to most of you, but I emphasize this because I see Satan trying to divide the church today. The church of Jesus Christ is always infected by the cultural issues around it. And I see evangelical, Bible-believing Christians fighting over social justice issues. And I have watched it. I've been around long enough to see how this division has developed over time. Because my parents came from that 19, World War II and 1950s generation where being an American meant you were a Christian. And then I came through like the 60s and the 70s as a child watching how that was all kind of rejected and how the church kind of reacted by kind of withdrawing from the world and kind of fighting long-distance battles, you know, like self-righteously at times, pridefully, arrogantly, judgmentally, pointing a finger at the world and congratulating ourselves on how we weren't like the world and, you know, and, and, and trying through the Republican Party, more or less, to try to change the world, to make it this the Christian nation that they always thought it was supposed to be. And so we've got... That, that was actually all kind of falling apart just as I came into gospel ministry. The moral majority was in tatters by the time I really got started preaching the word. And, you know, with all the televangelist scandals and the political losses, and, and it's left a generation since then grasping for what, what are we to do? And reacting rightfully against the arrogance and legalism and judgmentalism of those who came before. And I have profited a lot by being challenged by younger leaders in the church and younger Christians who have called me on it and said, you're not compassionate enough. You're too worried about winning political battles and not enough about caring for the poor, the needy, the widow, the oppressed, the child, the, 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 the orphan. You're not caring. You're not compassionate. And when you talk about the gospel, it sounds more like self-congratulation than praise to the Lord. But the problem is, and I've watched it happen over and over and over, is that in the, in the Bible-believing church, when we correct an error on this extreme, we always go too far to the other extreme. And what I'm concerned about, let me give you a quote. I came across a quote from a, a writer named Amy Sullivan. I don't know anything about her, but I thought it was an interesting quote. She said, today's young evangelicals are socially conscious, cause-focused, and controversy-averse. And it was that last phrase that stuck with me. Controversy averse. And the writer who quoted her was actually went on to say, you know what, that's the kind of the, 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 the trap that social justice issues can be, is that they're very popular in the culture. And so if Christians champion caring for the poor, the needy, the oppressed, we can actually get pats on the back and applause from the world for what we do. But if you get too caught up in that, and that's, a, that's fine, that's good, but if you get caught up in that, all of a sudden you don't want to get the world's disapproval. And so you don't want to talk about holiness. You don't want to talk about sin that's both individual and corporate in the culture. And you don't want to talk about the gospel because the gospel says that if you don't believe in Yahweh, the covenant God of Scripture, and in his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, if you don't believe that weird exclusive doctrine, the Bible says that there is no hope, no meaning, and you're back under the sun where Q finds purposeless and meaninglessness in society. 
David Platt is a young leader that I have enjoyed being challenged on to say, what more can we do? How can we shake ourselves out of this, this cocoon we build around ourselves where we don't care about the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan? But I like in his church motto, he has one line where he says, as we work for justice in the world, we speak clearly about the judge of the world. And I like that line because it fits up very well with, I think, what Q is trying to say to us. Is that there is a judge. And there's only one means by which we will stand before him on that day. And that's covered, cleansed in the blood of Christ. And that's the most important message. It's got to start there. It doesn't end there. And if it ends there, we're wrong and we need to repent. But it starts there. John Piper says Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And what a joke it is to devote yourself to alleviating temporal suffering, physical, material, financial, relational suffering in this world while withholding the one means by which you can avoid eternal suffering, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justin Holcomb is another blogger. He says, to avoid the pendulum swing between the extremes, the church must emphasize both creeds and deeds. And the most important creed is the creed about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And I'll tell you this, I've not been around that long, but I have studied church history And church history is one long, consistent testimony to the power of balanced, biblical, healthy churches of Jesus Christ that emphasize both creeds and deeds. It's transformed the world again and again and again. And if we find ourselves falling into only emphasizing creeds or only emphasizing deeds, we will not be healthy and we will not ultimately have any impact in the world. The gospel is what changes people so that people can change society and the world. And that's where our emphasis must always be. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we walk humbly before you because we are totally dependent upon your grace. We are here as your people only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And our trust is in him, not only to transform us, but to use us as agents of transformation in our community, in our society, in the world. Father, forgive us for de-emphasizing the gospel And forgive us for our lack of compassion for the oppressed and the needy. Teach us to love your justice as you love your own justice. And to declare it to the world, especially the justice that was won through the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.